from the Film Society of Lincoln Center. You're listening to The Close-Up. This week we're sharing a highlight from our Germaine Dulac retrospective, which concludes today. Dulac was a feminist and socialist artist of the 1920s and 30s, whose bold experimentation helped legitimize cinema as an art form. Best known for The Seashell and the Clergyman, her 1927 collaboration with Antonin Artaud, Dulac straddled the worlds of commercial and experimental cinema, playing with narration, montage, and visual effects, and making the case in both films and writing for a pure cinema approach that took full advantage of the medium's unique properties. During the series, we hosted an extended conversation with Jermaine Dulac's scholar and University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee professor Tammy Williams, Columbia University professor Jane Gaines, and Rutgers professor Sandy Flitterman-Lewis to discuss Dulac's pioneering artistry, her film's political context, and her pivotal place in the history of cinema. Let's go now to their conversation. Hi, everyone in the audience, and to tell you how exciting it is and how long we have waited for this event. And I thought I'd take historically the frame to help you understand what I mean by how long and how amazing by talking first to my colleague, Sandy Flitterman Lewis, and and then secondly to my colleague, Tammy Williams, and to give you a more dramatic sense of how astounding it is to finally have in 2018 in New York so many titles by Germaine Duloc, when in 1971, Karen Kay and Jerry Perry published a book, Women in Cinema, and in it a small article by, I believe, Wendy Dozeritz, and she began to um, think about the one film we believe should be attributed to Duloc, The Seashell and the Clergyman, with reference, I believe, to Smiling Boudet. And I wanted to have Sandy begin to talk about that moment in 1971, 72, and also to mention that she and I were in the first feminist film conference ever in the world. I think that was around 78. And she only later wrote Desire Differently and was the first American to begin to tell us much more about Germaine Duloc. But I wanted her especially to tell the story of how Seashell and the Clergyman was misrepresented and misunderstood and how the reels were switched because it's a really amazing and unforgettable anecdote. Okay, is this on? Yeah, okay. Um, Yeah, that's an anecdote that uh, gets told a lot. First of all, in 74 I was working, um, there were a couple of us who were editors of a, a journal called Women in Film, which was the first journal devoted specifically. Otherwise, before that, there had been back pages of Screen and, and um, a Canadian journal that devoted their, their you know, interest to women in film. But Women and Film, Suwa Bay and Sonny Salyer were the editors, and they got a couple of us uh, to be associate editors. And then in 1974, um, the, the four associate editors who were mainly interested in theory, feminist film theory, broke away and started Camera Obscura, whose first issue came out in 76. Um, but so the, the story of Duloc, um, 
I came back from a horrible year in Paris and told my thesis advisor I was not going to do the big thesis on one film by Jean-Luc Godard. Uh, <laughs> And he said, well, you know, you've already written something on Duloc, and I'll explain that in just one minute. Um, and, because I'm not sure about the Karen Kay anthology. I, I, did you look at it and see? Uh, oh, okay. Well, it was really early. Yeah, no, Wendy's article was in um, Wide Angle. But anyway, to make a long story short. <laughs> so, my thesis advisor, who's still my mentor, um, said, well, you've written on Duloc, and you interviewed Marie Epstein, and that's another whole kettle of fish there, but uh, she made 11 feature films with a man named John Benoit Levy. Nobody had ever heard of either of them. And I said, oh, and I'll do Agnes Varda. Uh, so this is, <laughs> uh, this is 70, 77, and I had done something for women in film. It was a short bio, which I, I put up on Facebook. Um, it was somebody named William Van Wert, had written some, an essay on the seashell and the clergyman based on the misunderstanding that I will tell you in a minute. And I had this little uh, John Ford, bio, um, Charles Ford biography of, uh, in the anthology du cinema um, on uh, Duloc. And so Sonny said, translate it. So I did, but I embellished it and did other things. And then I made this little line drawing of her. And this, so this is the first actual um, article in English about Duloc herself. And I learned a lot of things, but you know, a lot of it was inaccessible. So after this decision to do my dissertation on discovering the strategies of feminist filmmaking or, uh, with, around these three authors, um, and to try and do more textual analysis than biography, uh, I started working on Duloc. There was nothing on her uh, in English. I'm absolutely very, uh, aside from, I think Regina Cornwell did something on Duloc and Maya Darren. But anyway, so most of my sources were French. There was no internet, there was no VHS, there was no DVD. When I came to New York, when I moved to New York, I decided um, the two films that people did know about of Duloc's were um, uh, The Seashell and the Clergyman and The Smiling Madame Boudet. And as I learned from Tammy today, Duloc had actually distributed these here. Yeah. Um, she sent them to MoMA um, in 1936, and so they, they came here. In okay, so that's, that starts the, uh, both the recognition of her and the problem. So I was looking, you had to look at, you Iris know. Iris Berry was the person. I oh, yes, Iris Berry was very important. Um, I looked on the, I had the script. Now, Artaud wrote a script, and um, Duloc was chosen to make the film partly because of her interest in the unconscious, in trying to find cinematic methods to convey the language of the unconscious. Uh, and she was chosen by these psychoanalysts who were very good friends with uh, Artaud, named the Allondi uh, couple. Anyway, his scenario is very bizarre. He, he developed a theater of cruelty, and it's very kind of jagged and unexpected and all that kind of stuff, and non-narrative. And the scenario um, was translated a couple places, but nobody really looked carefully at the film and the scenario until I looked at it like 50 years after it came out. Um, and at that point, I noticed that these reels were reversed, that the second reel uh, was put at the end and the third reel was put in the, mid in the middle. And because it was a surrealist film, everybody just thought, oh, this is nuts. <laughs> 
So Which, that's what happened. By the way, if anyone has seen any of the U.S. release DVDs, the reels are still in the wrong order. Yeah. Um, I've brought that to the attention of Kino several times, and they've assured me that they're going to try to fix it at some point. But, yeah. They told me, too. Yeah. I, you know. And they're still producing in the, in the wrong order. But you can order it with the, the new the reels in the right order through lightcone.org. So. Thank you. Okay, so just to finish up quickly, I looked at it. I looked at the script. Now, I have a couple of quotes from what happened when the film came out. There was this big riot. Nobody understood what was going on. Um, and here's my... In the wilds so, of my... Oops, there it is. So to, to place this, the year that Seashell and the Clergyman comes out, so everyone follows this story, Artaud is in the audience. We're going to set this up because everyone told this anecdote. It's extremely important. Yes, That right. Sandy's going to explain. The year it came out was... Jan uh, February of 1928. Okay, yeah. so we're going to set this up for you. Okay, so when the film showed, there was a riot. But there were usually riots at surrealist films, so this was an expected <laughs> thing. Yeah. Everybody picked up their chairs. You were supposed to riot. <laughs> yes, right, that was de rigueur. Um, so somebody said, who made this film? And somebody else said, Madame Germaine Dulac. And she was said to have fainted. Um, who is Madame Dulac? She is a cow, thereby insulting all the cows who were in the audience. And oh, also, that's, uh, there's been interpretation of the term cow vash as vash. meaning lesbian. Yes, also. oh, okay. Well, that's excellent. It's perfect for the mythology. But that's about 30 years later we translated it as a lesbian. For years yes. we just said Madame Dulac was called a cow. She was, uh, because nobody... And we were angry as young feminists, very yes, angry. Yes, right, no, that's certainly... But the, the debate happened, this is a legendary um, thing that disrupted the, the showing of the film. Now, some people think that Artaud was um, being, he himself was being um, protested because he had just quit the Surrealist group. Uh, and then, so there was a lot of confusion. But the thing that remained throughout decades was that a critic named Adog Kirou said she had made a feminine film and d took away all the, the, the masculine power of Artaud's script which is complete crap. But anyway, um, after that, Ellen Virmeau, who summarized the whole thing, also said she was accused of having feminized the film. So you immediately get this question of, what is a feminine film? Uh, it turns out she didn't do what they said she did because there were arguments about the, and in fact, Wendy's article um, goes on the wrong, on the basis of the wrong, the wrong film. So this the, the reels reversed film. Yes, yes, right. The legendary um, sort of opening of this film, the uh, curious misapprehension of Dulac as either a stupid feminist or a surrealist, which she was neither. I mean, she was a feminist, but she wasn't like a facile feminist. Um, so that followed, and nothing else. There was like nothing else except for this. And when I first had heard of The Seashell and the Clergyman, I thought it was uh, Artaud's film. And so anyway, that got righted at a certain point, and I wrote a lot about the debate, but it still continued on, and this light cone uh, DVD um, has the correct order, has three different possibilities for soundtracks, and then has this wonderful bonus that Tammy and I and our friend Prosper and his friend uh, Nicolas um, made. This is about 20 minutes long. 
which so is wonderful. I'm, I'm going to hold right That's there it, because yeah. I want to get this audience clear on what we're talking about. We're talking about, first, the question of release in 28, and then I wanted Tammy to fill in, before we get to Lightcone, which is a recent DVD, yes, before we get to Lightcone, the distribution, because that's a story we're always dropping, the distribution through the MoMA library of 16 millimeter prints, which explains why for years most of us thought Jermaine Delac, who was feted at the 1974 Chicago Film Festival, right. and I believe in New York yeah. also, which is the point of discovery, but we believe she had made two, that's two right. films. Right. So we, and actually we were fascinated with her image because there's the image of her in the tuxedo that right. some people had, copies of some people seen it they'd seen a xerox you see in those days we actually didn't have access to those right. images for years but i did the line drawing in in uh, women in uh, women in film well yes and women so the women in film which is now online scanned on jump cut the four there were four issues am i right sandy i think there were five this was issue five six and okay then there would have been five six and these are the berkeley phds that became the camera obscura editors and we called them the obscure editors. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yes. Because it was a very dense feminist journal. Right. It was and either the, positive or negative, depending on how. Uh, you saw the theory. successor to Women in Film, now defunct, but alive on JumpCut.com, uh, um, eJumpCut. E e so Tammy's going to tell us about Museum of Modern Art and how in the world those titles got from France here to U.S. to U.S. to, to use in classes, where we taught them for years. Those two films. Uh, well. <laughs> And why these two? That's a very good question. Um, and I'm not sure I can answer it entirely, but all I can say is that 1935 was the year of the founding of the Cercle de Cinéma, um, uh, in which a very young Henri Langlois, mm. uh, age, I think, 24, um, also with, uh, with uh, Georges Franjou and also Germaine Dulac, uh, got together and ended up uh, founding the Cinémathèque Française in 1936. And um, uh, from what I can, what I've found, Germaine Dulac, uh, who's who had links to the Defense Ministry through her her family and through her cousin Charles Schneider, who was head of Gaumont. Um, uh, was able to open up the military vaults to store films, and so there's this kind of um, well, big archival movement uh, or movement to to save these films. And, and this was around 1936, and it's the same year that there's a letter. Um, uh, it's there's a letter to Iris Berry or from Iris Berry requesting. So Iris Berry founds and, the Museum yeah. of Modern Art uh, Circulating around Library. Around the same year, around the same time. Right? In the 30s. In the 30s, right. So then she, uh, uh, um, she then requests these two films. Why these two titles, mm. I am not sure. Uh, probably Smiling Madame Bidet, uh, because it is considered to be Dulac's, already considered to be her masterpiece. Yeah. And because Seashell and the clergyman obviously had so much uh, noise around it uh, because of this scandal and even Artaud who had denied that the film was his and then reclaimed the film and said it was yeah. his. Um, so there was this kind of, uh, there was a lot of noise around these two films. Um, yeah, that's the short answer. So, so what I wanted to do here is to talk a little about Smiling Mad Day, and then I want to just give you a preview that we will have Tammy 
describe to you, she's the second generation after yes, Sandy's right. generation, how she, an American PhD student at UCLA, was able to crack the French archives that no French person knowing or suspecting all the boxes with Germaine Dulac's materials never, never accessed. So that's the story after we talk a little about Madame Boudet because we're describing a film that you might or might not seen as part of the retrospective. And if you're arguing it's a classic, I want to know who described it as a classic because seeing the titles this weekend, Cigarette in particular and Death of the Sun or Morte de Soleil, if we had seen those two other titles at the same time we were teaching Madame, Madame Boudet, we would have tossed out Madame Boudet because there's, there's more beyond smiling Madame Boudet, which we taught to death. So why do you think, Tammy? And then I want to know what you think. I, yes. <laughs> because this is an amazing case. The title that stood for so long as women making work in the 20s, and we believed that there had been maybe Alice Guy, possibly we're hearing about Lois Weber, and Jermaine Delac, who was likely a lesbian, but we had no proof. And for years, oh, and then there was Lenny Riefenstahl, and she was invited to the Chicago Film Festival, but then they found out about her collaboration with Hitler, and they didn't let her out of the hotel room. It was a very scandalous moment. And we had so few examples in the first decades. Mm -hmm. And now what we'll end by telling you is how many more actually made work all over the world. And the fact that their work survives in FIAF archives is actually a part of the history of how Tammy came to put together so many titles for this retrospective, but also for the two years she did retrospectives at Bologna. Uh, but I got ahead of myself because I want to know about Madame Boudet. What's okay. your theory? Okay, so that's a great question. And Jane always has great. Because it got canonized um, without having seen any rest um, of any of the rest of her work. Well, well it was not available. Uh, um, well, Smiling Madame Boudet I, was acclaimed in France it, by critics. Uh, it was. There were several critics who. So this is a film, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, that is, uh, does what Schostrom and Stiller do to, uh, to landscape films. Dulac does this for films about the provinces with its grayscales and its musicality. And it's, you know, this is a masterpiece. This is Dulac's masterpiece. Um, there are other critics who talk about other films of Dulac as uh, groundbreaking, like um, Gossette, which uh, one critic describes as a game changer in film serials. And uh, it's a film that Francois Alberat has latched onto as, but for him, he, he, didn't, he wasn't interested in Dulac's films until he saw Gossette, and he said, ah, this is a great serial. And um, we so hadn't known a, you know, she made serials all yeah, those she years. she made serials. And we've just found just a, a well, not we, but uh, I Film Museum just found a fragment of Am de Fou, which we in Amsterdam. Was shown, uh, yeah, and it was shown in, in uh, Bologna this summer uh, and uh, reconstructed with still photos and moving images. And uh, so that's from 1918, uh, so one of the, mm -hmm. the earliest uh, films. So, so to pass it over to Sandy, I, I'm wondering, Sandy, we taught this because it was a woman's dream. She had a fraught relationship with a Terror of a creepy, husband. Really creepy guy. 
and it was experimental. It had those wonderful superimpositions yeah. to refer to Sostrom and the Swedish experiments. So uh, why, why do you think it was canonical? Here's my take. For years when I taught the smiling Madame Boudet, it didn't exist as a, anything I could use in the classroom. So when I started my work on Duloc, um, I had no access to anything except for artic Xerox articles and library books and other people's accounts of the film. So I knew she had done a lot of commercial stuff. But here's what's important to me, um, and I've written about it in a different context, is Duloc, uh, makes The Smiling Madame Boudet in, what, 23, is that it? And Virginia Woolf does Mrs. Dalloway in 1924. Mm -hmm. And both of them are about a female-centered consciousness that organizes the images or the thoughts. And it's much more about prioritizing a woman's consciousness, if that could be described. So it's a big first toe in the water to talking about uh, or regendering the sort of neutrality, masculine imperative neutrality. Then Duloc makes, after she makes the seashell on the clergyman, which, yes, there are wonderful letters from, from Artaud, he's very polite, I don't want to disturb you, blah, 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 blah. And then the last letter after he's seen the film is lost. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's not in the Fallen uh, Archives, but anyway. Um, it's not clear that he hated the film so much as he objected to it being a dream on the screen. And it was the Allendees who had actually asked her to do a dream on the screen. So in my chapter, I say, from fantasy to structure of the phantasm, the smiling Madame Vaudet, Seashell and the Clergyman. In other words, what she tried to do within the confines of a character was to suggest the fantasy life and the inner life, this... Um, Oh, God, what's it called in, in literature? You know, the subject. Oh, God, I can't remember. Anyway. The um, unconscious. The, yeah, something like that. Yeah, the unconscious will the do. Sub that's subjectivity. That, yeah, yeah, right, subjectivity, yes. Um, so she tried to generate this su female subjective discourse in a film which was nonetheless a kind of commercial film. So she did away with conventional uh, character, you know, character building. And, and uh, her other films, there's a lot of beauty in the films, but they were totally unavailable at the time I was writing. And then she makes The Seashell and the Clergyman, which I want to just read you a quote from her and a quote from um, La Planche and Pontalis, who do psychoanalysis. But the thing is, after she makes um, The Seashell and the Clergyman, she makes these three abstract films, which are stunning. They're absolutely stunning in their, their sort of composition, their visual composition. And like Tammy has mentioned, Dulac was very interested in creating a visual sym symphony. And she was much more interested in musical rhythms and um, you know, uh, abolishing the anecdote, as she used to say. And Wolf does To the Lighthouse, which is her, um, the same, 27, I think, the same kind of thing where it's much more about essences and feelings and, and, and time passing uh, than it is about constructing a character. In fact, the character is, uh, uh, the graduate student, I can't remember his name, but he's horrible, and he, he's like all male graduate students, as some of you know. <laughs> no offense, guys, but, you know, it was a struggle. So anyway, the first quote is, unconscious ideas are organized into fantasies or imaginary scenarios to which the instinct becomes fixated and which may be conceived of as true mise-en-scene of desire. And that's La Planche and Pontalise, which was the Bible for us in the 70s. Um, 
definitions of psychoanalytic terms. They were too psycho. And if you've seen Vardos, The Gleaners and I, um, is it Laplanche? Yeah. Laplanche. Yeah, is, is in there talking about his winery and, and his wife who went to Lacan. Anyway, then I have a quote from her. The cinema is marvelously equipped to express the manifestations of our thought, of our hearts, of our memories. And these are three kind of abstractions that she was constantly dealing with. And um, this is what makes these films so revolutionary. And I actually do think that uh, The Smiling Madame Boudet um, is a classic. I wrote something about that and uh, Jean Dielman, the Chantal Ackerman film. It's called What's Beneath Her Smile. Which, I, I think yeah. I, I might be happier with returning to Madame Boudet if we could straighten out this question of the avant-garde and melodrama. Oh, because... Uh, and the audience might not know about these debates. One concept I think is very important uh, is narrative avant-garde, okay? Because yeah. the time we were teaching Madame Boudet, we only had, well, they were separated. We, we had the antithesis mm -hmm. of Hollywood, which was the avant-garde. Mm -hmm. But the French, we called them the Impressionists because of the Bordwell chapter. Bordwell. Yes, because and that was all we had. And we that would teach Leger yeah. and maybe Viking Egling. And so we would apply that to Madame Boudet. What we really should have had is disc and arabesque and variations. The, yeah. They were shown within this festival, the three amazing Duloc experimental shorts, which Lobster has now put out on DVD, and which uh, in my project, which is replaced in the history of the first two decades of cinema, every single male-made film with a one made by a woman, which we can now do, <laughs> pitch, pitch. <laughs> we will take away Leger and put in the three, one, if we could choose which, uh, the amazing experiments, because they're beautiful on the screen and in large black and white, and they're clearly totally abstract. But the difference in Madame Bidet is that she's mixed. Yeah. And yeah. she's used the experimental techniques. That shot of the bed with the poem over about the, oh, the, the, the pillows, the yeah, yeah. mountains, the rocks that are the pillows. pillows. Thank you very much. And. And then the tiny tennis player superimposed yes. on the table, which is the lover she never appears right. to actually engage with, but he's there imagined and superimposed. And there are touches like that. But then it's a story that ends with a, a, a faked, well, threat. He threatens to shoot himself. And then at the last minute, doesn't. And this is a narrative problem. Will he? Won't he? What? 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 And he aims the gun at her. What effect? Yes, he aims it at her, blames her. What will result? So narrative has always got to organize. And her commercial work tells us that she was very yeah. good at organizing yeah. that kind of narrative cause and effect pattern. And to put a pitch in for the melodrama, this is French melodrama. Mm -hmm. This is yeah. written like strong family melodrama and it's riveting on that level also. So this is a problem right now, historically, we have to put these two kinds of approaches together. Now that's our job, that's not your job, just to tell you that you don't want to be separating these two anymore when you talk about films. So I always say to my students, having taken this class, you will be able to say much more interesting things when you exit the theater than your <laughs> friends are saying. I, I still don't know what they're saying, but I'm hoping that, some, you know. that they're having more informed <laughs> debates. So um, 
if you wanted to say something about experiments, that would be good, but I don't want to hold off too long on the great moment in which you finally gain access to the, it's the CNC or the beefy? So can we, can we have you resurrect that moment when you discovered how much there was and you were going to be the first to actually put it together? Yeah, I guess, I, yeah, I, I would love to talk about this because it actually, I can say that um, having, uh, well, having read Sandy's work um, at UCLA on German Dulac and my, my doctoral advisor was Janet, Janet Bergstrom, who was one of the co-founders with one of the obscurettes, of camera obscura, yes, one of the obscurettes, and famous. Uh, I was particularly interested in. Uh, actually, I was interested in a lot of different things, but um, I was interested in educational film and visual literacy and Scotland, um, Scotland, Scotland, yeah. uh, a lot of other, a lot of things. Uh, Chinese cinema, <laughs> Mandarin classes were not going well, um, and then. Um, so then I, 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 had, I had really decided I wanted to write about educational films. And I went to Paris in 19, summer of 96, and uh, in August, when nothing is open. So, yeah, right. so then um, I went there trying to decide what I was going to write my dissertation on the following year. Um, and I started looking around, and I found these articles um, at the Bibliothèque Nationale. The Bifi wasn't open, the archive right. wasn't available yet. Um, and on, uh, that Dulac had written in the 1930s about newsreels and mm -hmm. educational film. And I thought, huh, that's funny. This is not the, you know, I, I, didn't, know, I didn't realize. I only knew about Smiling uh, Madame Bidet and The Seashell and the Clergyman. And I thought, wow, she was writing in the 30s. Uh, and then um, I came across the writings of, uh, well, of Dulac that had been published by Prosper Hilaret, Les Écrits. Uh, just in 1994, and then I had heard these rumors about these boxes of materials that Dulac had deposited at the Cinematheque that someone had, I think it was Alain Vermeaux who I met, and uh, who said, there is a red box, you've got to find it. <laughs> One? Yeah. Yeah, it was a red box, and I kept thinking, huh, oh, a red box. Um, so then I decided I was going to come back. I was, I, I was going to go back to the, the Cinematheque once it was open, and I did. And luckily, I got a grant to study abroad for a year in France, and I came back in the summer of 97 uh, after taking my exams, and I, and I went to the archive, and I said, okay, I hear you have a box of materials on Germain du Lac, and I want to see it. And uh, they said, well, we're still doing the inventory here, but um, it should be available. Well, turns out they had, I don't even know how many boxes, uh, maybe at least 30 boxes. She was a um, real blabbermouth. 5,000 documents uh, of varying lengths, uh, some one page, some 300 pages, um, some in giant, giant press books. Um, and I thought, I'm going to need more grants. Um, so. I, I went into the archive and uh, I had this very heavy laptop uh, and I made friends with the archivist and I said, can I please leave this here? I'm getting back problems from carrying this around. It weighs over 10 pounds. But I started, I sat there and they were open every day from, from one to five and I went there and I spent every day there for a year, got a second grant, got a third grant uh, and by the end of the third year there of reading these documents, there was... Um, 1,500 letters, 
But um, from uh, Albert Dulac to Germain Dulac during World War One, there's so many documents. Um, they said, okay, <laughs> one of my, my colleagues at the Arsenal said, you're going to have to start writing. Mm -hmm. But um, this was from, so from 97 to 2000. And the first films I saw were the abstract films. And this mm -hmm. was from, uh, or the experimental uh, films. So, so, so hang on here. So the beefy is in one place, but the, they were in the Cinematheque Francaise. Where were the 35? So the, the and beef, how did you access those? The, the beefy was actually located on Faubourg Saint-Antoine in an old uh, oh, newsreel theater that Dulac had shown her 1935 uh, Cinema Service d'Histoire film mm -hmm. at uh, mm -hmm. for the opening of that theater um, at 100 Faubourg Saint-Antoine. The films were at the Cinémathèque Française and somewhere at the CNC and then elsewhere in Europe in different archives. And so the Cinémathèque Française films, um, so my advisor Janet had a friend at the Cinémathèque, uh, but they told me it was going to be 50 Euro, uh, or equivalent of $50 an hour to sit in the room, uh, not you know, an hour worth of film, but if you want to rewind it, it might cost you $100. Um, so I thought, how am I going to do this? So um, I luckily got to know one of uh, the people that worked at the archives, and he said, listen, you know, I'm going to bring you over here to, uh, it was when it was over by the Musée de l'Homme, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm near Lidec, um, you can come in at these hours and you can watch them on a Steinbeck reel to reel. To yeah, reel. Right. So I basically started watching these films. And I also, uh, Dulac kept uh, varying filmographies that she had submitted um, for awards. And okay. she was Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur. She got the Legion of Honor Award. So she had varying filmographies. And I saw that she had directed 30 fiction films. Uh, she had directed uh, numerous documentaries. She had directed hun you know, hundreds of, or at least uh, supervised um, at least 100 newsreels, so many different newsreels. Um, and I, my mind was blown. And uh, just watching, you know, looking at these lists and, and then trying to figure out how to see them. And it was the rights holder representative, Jan Beauvais, that allowed me to see the ad the. Uh, what were called, referred to as abstract films. Dulac didn't call them abstract films. What did she call them? Well, she said... Because she was the pure cinema movement yeah, uh, person. Yeah. So were they not... Experimental films. Experimental films. Uh, abstrait, Referred to as abstract. Because there were other films that were called abstract. And so she said yeah. they do... She actually dif uh, differentiated her films from the other abstract films by um, Rotman and Richter by saying... Uh, you know, they're re using the lines of painting, but these lines exist, these lines and forms and movement and rhythm exist in life itself. We do not need to use painterly images. We can use life itself. Life itself already contains these lines and forms and movement and rhythm. And so for that reason, she then later says that the newsreel is the purest form of cinema, and she starts to actually, um, uh, some of her writings, uh, she can be seen as a kind of theory, uh, a kind of proto-cinema uh, direct, or direct, direct cinema theory. I don't think, is this working? Yeah, okay. I just yeah, wanted to say something she, about after she makes those three um, films, the non-narrative films, mm -hmm. then she starts making documentaries, and she was very active in the popular front. She was a socialist, she was a, a feminist, and she lectured all over the place. And this is one of the reasons that they think that her death was obscured, because she was seen as a kind of 
enemy because of her socialism and, and all that. She headed the Gaumont newsreels. Um, and so at one point I wrote an article a different kind of thing about Dulac and Virginia Woolf, because Virginia Woolf's Three Guineas, which is an anti-war um, treatise, and her belief also in the power of newsreels and the immediacy of that kind of thing in history, very similar to the kinds of things that Dulac wrote at that time in the 30s. Um, you know, so you yeah, I think this is, this is really important to stress because in the 70s moment, we didn't actually think much about World War I and feminism. We were fixated on post-World War II yeah. and the femme fatale and film noir and yeah. men returning home and finding women. So we completely <laughs> didn't think, okay, about well, what, what about the feminist movement in an earlier moment? And yeah. when I would, just to pitch this, Feminist, Fabulous actually, book. this is called uh, Cinema of Sentiment, Jermaine Delac, Tammy's book. What shocked me or thrilled me most was to discover how very important she was in the anti-war movement as a socialist. Yeah. And something called, I wrote it down, the Women's Progress Movement. Now, this is also to ask a question about French feminists, because we used to say, why are we studying only um, Simone de Beauvoir and only the Lacanians? Weren't there other French feminists in the 20s? Well, clearly she was part of that movement. And I wanted you to say something about how you discovered, Sandy's absolutely right to emphasize this, that aspect of her life that for all we knew, the French hadn't written about. That progressive activist, oh, yeah, yeah. socialist, documentary stand, maker. Her interventions there. She was very yeah. active. She was indomitable. She really fought for what she believed in. But she was a feminist before. In the 20s, she was writing feminist analyses of the theater, of art, of, of doing that kind of thing. So she always considered herself a feminist. And um, this is, it, it didn't quite go with the, the 70s kind of, you know, because of the, the emphases that we had. But also, but, we just didn't know. Yeah, yeah, well, it's astounding to see the stuff she wrote on the 30s and on the newsreel and on, mm -hmm. on the, uh, you know, life itself as yeah. being the material. Her know? first her first feminist writings, it's really interesting because she, she actually, um, so she was born in 1882, so um, around, so she turns 20, she's, she's, uh, at the turn of the century, around 1900, she's 18 years old, yeah. and um, she's basically given the choice to get married or go into a convent. She actually, <laughs> she is, actually does go to a religious school um, from 1900 until 1904, and there's this really interesting correspondence with this nun where she's, she's um, basically... Uh, talking about how she wants to be free. And and so her her parents say, well, you have to get married, basically. And, and she does. And she does. And she Dulac. she actually marries uh, this man named Albert Dulac um, in 1905. And she says, this is my ideal man. He doesn't treat me like a lesser being. Um, I, it's my theory that uh, Albert Dulac was also uh, gay, because later he writes uh, that the day of their marriage was the day of their liberation. And uh, so... Um, That's really interesting evidence. I, I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not... Uh, I, I'm just thinking about how, how do you interpret this. Um, they, they loved each other. Um, you know, things were complicated then. And, uh, and they still are. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, why, why, did, uh, why did 
Dulac's partner, Marianne Colson Malville, remarry twice while living uh, continuously with Dulac this the entire time. What is your theory about this? She marries Paul Malville, she marries George Colson, Dulac's co worker oh. in the 30s, but she's living with Dulac the entire time. Um, I, I think, one, it has to do with rights, bank accounts, all kinds of things, oh, yeah. legal uh, mm -hmm. things, and, and also how homosexuality was viewed in the 30s, which was, it was much more hidden than it was in the 20s and much more hidden than it was in the teens and, and beginning of the, the century. Um, so Does that fit your theory? Did not. About this strange <laughs> I configuration. I kind of agree with that, but I also, Colson Melville, um, that manuscript, which when I was mm. um, in this, uh, God, it must have been, had to be after the 70s. No, when I started work, 76, when I started just being semi-interested mm. in, in Duloc, um, Bernard Eisenschitz had mm. this manuscript, Colson Malville manuscript, which is a lot of her writing. She repeated a lot, and so it must mm. have been torture to go through her writing. When I was working on Duloc and Arto, mm. and both of them, as I said, blabbermouths, and they just went on and on and on, and I could never tell who was saying what because they actually sounded alike. Um, but there are just scores that she, she saw mm. writing as part of her practice. And part of her social practice, because she was very much... Colson Malville. No, uh, Dulac, oh, okay. so writing. Yeah, Colson Malville mm -hmm. assembled these mm -hmm. things, which was to be mm -hmm. a posthumous book, I think. I have that, yeah. But oh, we okay. were talking about the relationship, that. and people are on, on the edge of their seat, wanting to know how... Oh, I know nothing about that. Oh. The relationship. <laughs> well, the, the complexity of her lover has two husbands. She has one husband, and she doesn't seem to divorce him, and there doesn't seem to be a difficulty. Well, she divorces she him in 1922, right? Finally. Okay. And then there's Napier Skowska. Yeah. But she has several lovers in the teens, and, um, and maybe a triangular relationship Albert Dulac talks about. Um, but there's, but um, so the kind of, I guess going back to this question of her, her feminism, but she, it's yeah. really in 19, uh, Albert Dulac really supports her feminism. He's a feminist, um, and mm. her uncle is also uh, a socialist. And many of the socialists are very much uh, feminists. We, even around 1907, we mm. have the he future head of the Popular Front writing these treatises against marriage. And, um, but she ends up working at a women's journal that um, oh, yeah, is the, uh, La Française, so in 1906, which is, uh, La Fronde ends in 1904, La Française begins, mm -hmm. and she ends up writing for that, she writes these articles interviewing women, and uh, it's the Women's Progress Movement, it's a journal of women's progress, is the subtitle of the journal, and then she starts writing these uh, feminist reviews of theater plays from 1907 to 1913, or 19, end of 1906, 1907 to 1913, um, and then she'll come back and end up writing, she writes film reviews later in the end of the 20s for La Fronde, which reappears. But, um, but she's, so she's already also writing about 19th century uh, feminists yeah. and uh, writings. And she's, she uh, talks about the importance of a moderate approach, saying that that's the only way to really get things done, that we've learned from the radical feminists of the 19th century, that that... Um, ends up being rejected. And so what we have to do is work from within and work in, according to this moderate approach. So I think that's really interesting yeah. to think about in her work because I think she always couches her more progressive discourse within these more traditional mm -hmm. um, terms or using but, more traditional terms. Okay, but she was also working in the industry 
Yeah. Does that explain some of that, that she yeah. had to be moderate? The film industry. The film industry. Absolutely. Because, she, because it's a commercial enterprise. Commercial. Yeah. And so she would make multiple endings for her films. She would, uh, for example, Belle Dame Saint Merci, which has, um, you know, this kind of, she actually introduces the film at the cine club saying, always take the endings with a grain of salt. You know, basically. Because these, I wrote another. Yeah. She's, yeah. <laughs> That uh, the fact that the the um, the Baroness doesn't run away with her lover and returns to her uh, her husband, um, take that with a grain of salt. This is this is a it's a, an imperative probably from the distributors. Yeah. Right? It, it could be that, but also I think that's what makes her a great melodrama structuralist. If you get to the end of Madame Boudet, you you know you could go either way. He could actually shoot himself, or he could shoot her. It it turns. You know, well, just so he, quickly. He aims the gun at her, and it's loaded because she's loaded it out of she the fog. But then he says, "Oh, you wanted to kill yourself," which in fact he makes the mistake. She wanted, and then the curtain goes behind them, and it says "théâtre," you know, theater, as if to do this kind of bizarrely Brechtian kind of stance on this ending where they're together. And then what happens is you have this sort of epilogue where it says "united by custom." And they're walking down the cobblestone street, and they say hello to the priest, and you know, walk on their way. And that is—that's the kind of stultifying, horrible thing. You know that she's still going to have these fantasies, but you're never going to hear about them. She's mm -hmm. just going to sort of succumb. But I—I I was or acquiesce. Mm -hmm. I was curious about what the film that we just saw. Um, Antoinette, Antoinette Sabrier. And yeah. you said there are different endings. Yeah. So there is one version that I saw that I think belongs to the. Cinematheque, maybe of uh, the University of Paris 3, because they did a, oh, or Paris so 1 or Paris 3, they have a version where you, you do see him in uh, hiding in a room with a gun and con contemplating suicide. And it's not in this version. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this version that we saw did have all of the, the ha did have the Harakiri scene, which is not in the other version. So right. um, those are probably changes made by distributors. Mm -hmm. But she did make, um, she, she did make multiple endings. Um, for example, La Folie de Vaillante, there's one where they do, you know, get married. There's one where oh, yeah. he, he stabs he her. He stabs her and then lays on top of her. Um, so, and there, yeah, there, there are a few different films where she, she does this. I wanted this, to say about La, Fol La Folie de Vaillante, which is a perplexing film for me. And last night I thought, when my in-laws saw uh, Chantal Ackerman's News from Home, they said that Meshuggah film, which some of you understand. Okay, this, to me, when I was thinking about this, that means crazy mixed up, you know, whatever, in Yiddish. But um, she has this kind of capacity not to be categorized, to do something unexpected. Every time you just say, oh, it's gonna be that way. She does something different. And, mm -hmm. I regret the fact that I was not able to see all these. I mean, it's a harvest of wonderful stuff to see, and it enriches our. This is why I said Tammy's book is the first, and um, there will be none better, or something like that. I said the first and the only, the best. Okay. The first and the only. Yeah. <laughs> well, a book of its kind, um, because there's just tons of stuff in there that you really get a, a full sense of not only Duloc, but of her, you know, different uh, uh, surroundings. The thing is, she was a, a cine club um, advocate. So she really believed in people showing films to groups and having group discussions, um, more like mm -hmm. to and fro. Uh, but they showed like the latest Eisenstein and whatever else, Vertov even, and, which mm -hmm. is what a lot of 
the stuff we just saw reminds me of the machine. Well, actually, I have something to say about Eisenstein because so there is, yeah. So Dulac was uh, involved with Casa, one of the early cine clubs, and mm -hmm. she ends up being she's involved in almost all of the major cine clubs of the twenties, and she ends up being the president and uh, founder of the French Federation of Cine Clubs um, in 1929 and 1930. She's uh, in two steps. Um, but the, uh, so I, speaking of Eisenstein and going back to the ending of Smiling Madame Bidet with this little title at the top mm -hmm. theater, this kind of mise en beam structure, and yeah. this also goes back to Jane's comment about why is this classic, there are many reasons why I think it is considered to be you know, one of her most important films, but when you start seeing the other films, you're like, wow. And, and, and in fact, the film that we're gonna see tonight um, at seven o'clock, La Princesse Mandan, is absolutely amazing in this. It's, uh, you, you see that she uses satire and mise en abeam uh, in many of her films. And so that is actually, um, it's a, a satire of a, a novel, Michel Strogoff, a, a novel in film. The film came out in 1926 and there's, this man who's reading it in the film and he falls asleep and he has a dream. And he dreams that he goes to the land of the Tartars and he goes and he rescues this princess in the castle. Only uh, he wants to rescue her, but there's a, a twist of events and it's not him <laughs> that rescues her. But, um, and there's a, a lot of cross-dressing as there is and even an invitation to a voyage, which we saw. Um, but um, this kind of, uh, the. The other thing she does besides Mise en Abim is satire. And I was with Richard Abel at, in uh, Port de Nantes in uh, 2014 when we did the, one of the retrospectives in Port, uh, not Port de Nantes, sorry, Bologna. 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 Um, and he said, Princess Mandan is amazing. It's unbelievable. Look at what she, she's doing. And, it, and, and it, she's actually satirizing the Odessa step sequence. In oh Nancy. my gosh. Oh. I mean, she, she is satirizing many other films of the period. And uh, yeah, so that's what I think is really incredible that she has this thing. Uh, but, but she's also satirizing, it seems to me, French melodrama, yeah. um, <laughs> uh, French plays. Yeah. And um, no, you're right about this. Her references, yeah. it's just full of references. Yeah. And so you kind of have a history of French cinema in the 20s if you watch mm -hmm. all of Delac. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to talk a little bit about her characterization of these strange, fraught men. Oh, because yeah. one thing you could say about her is that the men are actually more interesting than the women. I remember when we used to complain that Dorothy Arzner's one film we all saw was Christopher Strong. It starred Katherine Hepburn in this amazing role of the aviator, um, aviator who flies, who is pregnant and flies too high and it's a sort of suicide and we all thought it was about her but the name of the film is the name of the man. Well, so this dilemma, you would say, okay, what we used to say when we couldn't figure out what to do about the feminist aesthetic, which we now abandon completely, is, okay, we would expect that women's characters, women would do characters that are interesting women. But Delac's men, when I think about Delac, him, um, the husband, okay, the, the husband that she had, is this a portrait of French men she knows? Because Boudet, well, he's and horrible. he's horrible. And then the cigarette scholar is absolutely menacing and cruel. And then when I saw the film, no one else saw last night, the death of the sun, <laughs> the doctor who forces this amazing, dedicated, 
you could say, um, well, she's a surgeon, and they're studying tuberculosis. She's a scientist like he is, and he forces her to choose between being a mother and being his, uh, well, ideal, you could say, lab slave. How quaint. <laughs> and, and he vacillates as a character between being kind and wonderful and transformative in terms of society and an absolute ogre. And so I want to know, what I like about your book is you talk about how in the 20s, after World War I, there's this fascination with men who went through shell shock, which we understand from the literature. But yeah. this is the first time that in the 20s we, we're actually getting in films thinking deeply about men, how damaged they are, damaging and damaged. So maybe you could help us. Your book was really interesting on this point, Tammy. What are, what are people seeing in this retrospective? What have they already seen that, that really th there is no other cinema other than Jermaine Delac's cinema that gives us access to those kinds of male dimensionality portraits? So, and this has to do with Delac's socialism and feminism and her, uh, she's really um, interested not just in female characters, but also in male characters and, and also yeah. in equality for all. I mean, yeah. her, she's, it's a kind of feminism that's an anti-essentialist yeah. feminism. It's an egalitarian feminism. It's very um, it's characteristic so of a lot of women working during the women's progress movement um, that were, um, that was really heavily supported by um, men, and, and they were writing articles about men and women, male and, and female profiles. Uh, there were, um, it was really about modern women and men, as opposed to traditional women and men. And of course, egalitarian, uh, because we had, they wanted to make women egalitarian, and um, equal to men, and also to have more balanced roles. Um, I don't know if, I, if you want me to talk about the characters or you want me to talk about also Dulac's own biography, which is that her father was a military general and, and uh, her mother was put in a, an asylum or went to an asylum uh, around 1900 and she didn't have a lot of contact with them until their, uh, um, up until their death and uh, during World War I. Um, but uh, her mother also, yeah, she... she was suffering, and uh, she lost her first child, Dulac's sister, at, uh, who was only six months old. Uh, and then, and um, she does suffering very well. Of, for an yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, interesting things in, um, that maybe come into this in her in her own interests. And uh, but I think she is really interested both in the male and female characters. Um, but I I mean I really kind of. It became important to me to look not just at the women, but also the, not just the female characters, but also the male characters, and to, to think about, you know, what this meant during World War I, when, you know, a million, 10 million French men were killed, you know, and, you or, know. Or returned. Yeah. yeah returned. Wounded. Shell-shocked. And. But, but this is damaged. The surrealists had a response to this, too, that their art flourished as a result of World War um, I. But I wanted to say that during World War II, it, there were many women, this is why this is kind of cyclical, 
women who were not in the official resistance, but did resistance and were in dangerous positions and rescued children and did all kinds of things that are only now having any kind of uh, reaction to Dulac. Um, this is one of the things that always confuses me about L'Invitation au Voyage. This is, the title is based on a, a Baudelaire poem. We know she loved Baudelaire, and, and uh, Madame Bidet loves Baudelaire and everything. <laughs> this is a narrative, a narrative film in which the, it's a lot of close-ups, and it's a seduction that, that sort of that doesn't go well, or it's ambivalent, and the masculine character is extremely feminized. That's, and racialized. It's, it's a curious, curious kind of thing. I mean, this is the, the actor she chose. Um, whereas the uh, gender dynamics of um, the seashell and the clergyman would have been much sort of more interesting, I think, if Arto, who intended to be in it, was in it. But he had an obligation to Dreyer, um, who wouldn't release him for more than a week. And she needed him for two weeks. So she, and, and Tammy talks really well about this uh, Alex Alain, this guy from the bur burlesque, burlesque actor, yeah. yeah, a very strange looking guy who is as far from masculinity as you could get, I think. But as, and that dynamic gets kind of um, made curious. And this is one of the things with Dulac. She just does, she defines things her own way. And, mm -hmm. but I think it's always throughout her life, this commitment to um, social justice, to those kinds of things, but also to artistic um, experimentation, finding new ways to express other things like women's consciousness in Boudet, but also now she was very interested in documentary film and she was very good friends with Jean-Benoit Lévy who made 300 documentaries um, in, uh, before he made the feature films with Marie Epstein in the, in the 30s. Um, and so they had this kind of, you know, conversation about documentary film and promoting good health and education, that kind of thing. That was part of her sort of background too. So I wanted to uh, be sure we talked a little bit about structuring a retrospective and then open it up for questions. I wanted to slip this in because this is always a chance for film scholars to talk about the great difficulty of knowing that there's an amazing 35 millimeter work in a FIAF archive somewhere that we want you to see and we can't get it to you. Mm. And the number of films that Tammy saw on that horizontal editing bench in her third year or whenever she finally got the fellowship funding in Paris, she's seen more than anyone probably now, but we only see in New York some of that entire oeuvre. And so where are we relative to what we saw this weekend and what could be on DVD, what now, the fraction of films available on DVD, for instance, compared to what you showed this weekend, and then what wasn't shown. So there are really three things I wanted you to talk about. What's on DVD, which is the smallest, the fraction, what we saw this weekend, what's important still yet for you to see, and why, and why is it so rare, and then what, what do we still need to bring back to New York? Mm from France. <laughs> okay, what's on DVD? Um, so uh, there and, are, and how hard is it to get it to DVD? Um, how if much? anyone knows of donors, we have a project. I, I've been talking to the Cinémathèque Française now for a few years and we're trying to uh, do this. We have, um, but we need to find financing mm -hmm. uh, for this um, because we want everything to be uh, 
put to music for the DVD, and we have musicians that have already played for these films in Europe, and um, so that's that's the one obstacle. And then after that, I think just time, and hopefully this can happen soon. Um, but there are a few different uh, print holders that are releasing things on DVD. So um, Amsterdam, uh, the iFilm Museum, has released uh, a DVD with three films. Uh, of the Which restored, three? The restored prints of Smiling Madame Bidet, restored print of The Seashell and the Clergyman, and restored print of Invitation to a Voyage. Mm. Um, Lobster Film has released uh, one of Dulac's musical films, a sort of like pre-MTV music video made for Columbia Records that we'll see tonight at 8.45, synchronized with the music. I'm gonna, we're gonna sync it in the projection booth. Um, that is Celle qui s'en font. It's on a, a lobster mm. uh, film DVD. Um, recently, uh, there's a Women Film Pioneers uh, DVD that uh, came out in France with um, La Cigarette. Um, well, that's the lobster. Yeah, so yeah. lobster is one of the The cigarette the is not, it's the one du lac on the lobster yeah. compilation. Yeah, La Cigarette. Uh, which is the one that has Boudet on it. Some that's it. I, I the Amster Amsterdam. Yeah. No. So there's that's five films of available on DVD. Um, you mean the Kino Lorber collection? I think so. Yeah. That's th another topic of conversation. Oh, okay. I've talked to that. That's hopefully that's going to change. But so there really only are five. I think that's what I wanted to uh, dramatize that this audience that the riches and the treasures are still out there. Yeah. And what you saw this weekend, or still could see, we we may not have access to, certainly not online. I, I've, in the Netherlands, often will, at our urging, put titles up online, they'll stream them, but not the Cinematheque Francaise. No. 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 They sit on their treasure. They are So the, the fact that the cinema front says may mean that it would get uh, yeah. DVD released. I wanted to say something about Alice Guy Blachet to alert people to be natural and just shift off Delac here for a minute because Delac is part of a larger picture. If we think about before Delac, there was the French Alice Guy Blachet mm -hmm. who started as a secretary at the Gaumont Company in 1894. And then there's the huge controversy as to whether she made La Fea Show, the, the film she writes about in her memoir, if she made it in 1896, which would have been the year after the first exhibition in Paris, December 28, 1895. Most unlikely that she made it that early. So there's a big controversy, uh, a title that some say is La Fea Show, but it's not the one she describes. So. There's, uh, yes, on the DVD from Golf Mall, there's a title called The Cabbage Patch Fairy, which has a cabbage patch also, but it's probably made in 19. There's maybe one made in 1900, one in 1902. I don't want to get off the track with, okay. with Alice, except she makes our point here that if Alice had a career between 1896 and 1907 at Gaumont in France, came to the US and 1907 with her new husband and tried to start up a company, but was successful in New Jersey with the Solax around 1910 yeah. to 1912. It had maybe two I just, years. I just want to say there's a street named after her in oh, yeah. Fort Lee. Oh, good, finally. But, okay, to cut to the chase, 
We are now chasing after a thousand shorts and features she made in a two-continent career. So it's actually easier to find the three places where the, where the Delac titles are. Three places. Yeah. And we, we just got the signal that we need to wrap, so we should have questions. Yeah. Uh, please. Um, yeah. Uh, have you all been counting the submissions? <laughs> oh, yes, please. Okay, so I'm going to rephrase the question so everyone hears. The, the Weimar in the 20s, and this is actually quite interesting because the Weimar in the 20s, that, for instance, Metropolis and films. They were, Caligari, clearly, they were more available for us to talk about. Yeah, and were. so they really defined a canon. Yeah. But um, you've thought about just, that, haven't you? I have a bit. Um, I mean, obviously, France and Germany were not on the best terms during the 20s. Um, but, um, you know, these films were shown in France. And they're actually, um, I read about this in my book, which is on sale. And, and Jane is the series <laughs> editor. Um, it's on sale for $20. You can pick it up just for a 20 up front. It's but it's, um, she actually, um, she, I, I think, references Nosferatu in a few films. In fact, the, the, yeah. the, the silhouette of, of Antoinette Sabrier, and also um, Alex Alain, the, the way that he uses clawing hands, I think, yeah, it, to me, yeah. is a reference to Nosferatu, just the way Alex Alain swings his uh, key like Chaplin swings that his cane. That is a dissertation topic that someone needs, referring to these other films, needs to take up, Weimar. because it's yeah. definitely That's there. It. And thank you yeah. for the question. So just make sure, because we have another question okay. up here. Yes, uh, the music accompaniment. I'm curious about the, the, the Music done at the time the films came out. Whether she, you know, like how much she got into that, how, and and how is that done today? Do we use new music? Can you talk about that? Um, so. Um Wow. Uh, so at the times, the, fil the films would be released into, uh, many of them were released at the Salle Marivaux in Paris with uh, a score. Um, and then they would travel to cinemas in France, and they would usually be accompanied by piano. Um, and there's often another program. And these programs are available at the Bibliothèque Nationale. You can see the different musical uh, and also film pairings. Uh, these films were not shown alone. They were often shown with newsreels and other, other shorts, uh, comedies, two-part programs. Um, now, uh, the music has been... I've worked on a couple of retrospectives, and we did one in Paris with 25 uh, films, and uh, we did one... We did two in Bologna, in two parts, and we've uh, had music accompaniments of all different sorts um, for these films. Um, uh, some that have really tried to go back to using uh, the music cues of the time, um, Debussy, Chopin, uh, Ravel, but some that, uh, in fact, uh, Maud Allison has gone back and researched the work of this female woman, this woman pianist of the time, um, and uses her uh, scores um, or her, her, her compositions and her scores. Um, and then there's some more contemporary interpretations, and like the one we saw of the seashell and the clergyman on, on uh, Friday night uh, or last night, which was really, I think, fantastic and yeah. uh, kind of uh, using a th synthesizer and um, computer to create atmospheric sounds for the seashell and the clergyman and reading it as almost kind of a, I think, like a horror film. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Um, so yeah, there are a lot of yeah, different possibilities. Improves it. Yeah, improves it. I wanted to be sure that we passed out the Women Film Pioneers bookmark. I think they forgot to pass it out back there. Oh, for oh, people so to people pick, up pick up on their up. way out? Because this gives you, uh, you'll hear a lot of false information like, okay, common sense knowledge about the women in early cinema, and this is the most comprehensive from all over the world, actual, actual experts. Mm -hmm. And all of the FIAF archives where films are extant are listed. So if someone says, no, they don't exist, you can actually go to this site and tell them how Great many site. are waiting yeah. to be restored mm -hmm. and brought to you in New York <laughs> on 35 millimeter. Mm -hmm in your lifetime. <laughs> and also, I should say, Jane, has, with the Women Film Pioneers Project and the Women Silent Screen Conference Series and the Women Film History, History International Book Series that Jane is, is leading, um, we've learned that around the world there's so many hundreds of women working in film and as directors, as screenwriters, and Editors. many different roles during this period. So we're just... Ma many you know, more lesbians than we thought, too. <laughs> yeah. Not just Jermaine Duloc, which we, we find a lesbian in Japan. We, find, we just found one who named her company after her lover, who was a distributor in New York, uh, a bisexual who was out as bisexual. They're just amazing discoveries. So, uh, th yeah, I think that we should thank Lincoln Center, thank oh, yes. Tammy, thank, uh, thank Sandy for coming. I think, yeah. Thank you as an audience and also Dan and Emily and, and everyone involved here at Lincoln and, um, and Dan, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that he has expressed that there might be a second retrospective of Duluxums. So who knows? We will see. But that's something to at least dream about and hope for. Um, maybe we'll see more Duloc films and also more women's films in general here. Um, so thank you. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a non-profit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-A-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>